So I'm going to totally just drop on you right now. Yesterday I was mm -hmm. in here. Yep. I uh, actually recorded an audition tape to be Hamid's father-in-law. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> no way in hell I'm going to get it. You know. That's they, amazing. Uh, so they, they had kind of, the, it turns out my grandmother's best friend, mm -hmm. her daughter, and my mom are best friends. And this lady... She's a few years older than me, so we weren't really friends right. growing up, but we obviously knew each other because the family and all. Yeah. She's a casting lady, and we're friends on Instagram. Mm -hmm. She's like, you know, always posting, I'm looking for this, I'm looking for this. And it was Hamid's father-in-law, and I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, that's me. So anyway. That's I, great. Uh, yeah, I, I shot an audition. Oh, I sent in um, some tape of me, mm -hmm. and on the basis of that, they actually wanted me to do an audition okay. tape, so they sent me a script. That's fantastic. And I just, I just, and the, the point of the character is a redneck who's seen the light because right. he's got a son-in-law, Hamid, you know, and uh, that's amazing. You know, I, I don't put pork in my chili right. anymore, you know, that, <laughs> all that, the good all, things, all the, all the things. And so uh, anyway, I just channeled my inner Ron White. That's good. Yeah. And so, so that's, that's who, that's, that was my audition. Were, were you chewing on a cigar at the same no, time? Cause we didn't have a cigar down here. So okay. I was chewing on a marker and I turned to the camera. I said, don't give me shit. I'm trying to quit. <laughs> Hey everybody, I'm Chuck fucking Yates. I'm from Richmond, Texas, which actually is a suburb of Houston. I'll shoot any fucking time y'all want to shoot this shit. Let's do this. Oh, quit looking at me. I'm trying to quit. Oh, hell. Muhammad, you don't even know the half of it. Once Rush Limbaugh died, I didn't know what to do. I mean, that Sean Hannity's kind of a little bitch. But anyway, I'm awake now. Not woke. That's like some Hollywood bullshit, you know? Well, when you said rot, like that's why I immediately think of the cigar. Oh my God. I don't know. He's the best. Yeah. Wait, so are they doing a second? Is it the second or third season? Moe's series two. Season yeah, two. Season okay. two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I, I watched and I was waiting for this because that came out in 2020. Yeah, it's been, it's so been, it's been a, a minute. Yeah, because it I thought it was awesome. Like when he gets shot, when the bullet grazes him. Yeah. And he, <laughs> that was my favorite episode. Well, you know, when he when he is using his humor as a defense mechanism, mm -hmm. he's just great. You know, yeah. when he's kind of overwhelmed yeah. or, or whatever. Yeah, I, I, I love uh, that whole thing. And it's and so Houston, right? I mean, yes. we know all the places if you're a Houstonian right. that uh, I, I know it well enough where there's some of them. I was like, oh, I think I've been there. It's like, yeah, it's like I've driven by that. It's like that all looks familiar. But yeah, it's good. So I've done that. I will send you my. Uh, oh please, my, my I, copy of I would my love tape. to see. Please critique, it. especially when you have the marker as the. Yeah, the, uh, <laughs> well, I've got the marker in the Scotch glass, right? There you go. Hit and the I'm, rocks. And I'm supposed to be at a chili cookout, yeah. so I have an Astros apron on. <laughs> the uh, you need a, oh, what's the guy's name that that does all the crazy ads? Um. Who's the one that that always has like if the Astros win the World Series, you get oh all Mattress Mac. Yes, yeah, he's my favorite. I was like, because <laughs> I always think of he always has a ton of Astro stuff on it. So that's what you said the Astro apron. That, that's, that's all right. I, I can think of him. Should have channeled Mattress Mac for it. 
Solid. Hardware yeah. furniture. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That'd uh, be great. I, every time I see those commercials, I get so excited. Yeah. So anyway, there you go. Yeah. I hope you're sitting with a Netflix That's, star. There you go. Yeah, that would be too cool. How, how many episodes would you be in? I have no idea. Mm. They they sent me one page of a script. Okay. Just so, as a test read. Yeah. Okay. Well, and I think I, I committed the cardinal sin. I don't think you're supposed to ad lib the lines. And I kind of just ad libbed a it, bunch of the lines. I don't know. It goes both ways. Sometimes I feel like people like it. Like, um, uh, did you ever watch Rafi? Uh, from um, the league, no. So Rafi, but I know who you're talking about. Yeah. So yeah. it's in his contract. He doesn't use a script. Okay. He'll use, like, he'll follow the the line, the storylines. Yeah. So the gentleman that from Brooklyn Nine Nine, the one that passed away. Yeah. The, so hey, uh, he, Andre. Yes, Andre. Robert. So he holds to the line to the letter, and they had trouble working together at first because he's just all over the place. But he'll follow like within a box, but there's no, so each take is just different. And so it was throwing them off and then they finally figured out how to make it work. So sometimes it, it just makes it more fluid and, and more natural. And, and my, my issue was I was trying to, so I throw this charity roast mm -hmm. each year and I always hire a comedy writer to right. write the roast for us. We, uh, after the Lisa Stewart roast, that the next year I was calling and saying, hey, will you buy a table from the roast? And people were like, I'll buy the table, just don't make me go. <laughs> we were like, okay, we need a professional to right. help out here. So uh, we wound up doing it. But what I have found working with him on stuff is he'll write a great joke, but you kind of have to put it into your yeah, cadence. Exactly. And so I have to go off and rewrite it. Right. I kind of I wound up doing uh, doing this, throwing well, some stuff in. Well, that's the thing. It's like you have to make it yours. Otherwise, it'll feel just so flat and and just like you're reading it. And you need to put it in your cadence or you know, change the, the, the words so that it's something that is how you would say it, not yeah. how. And that's, I think, sometimes makes it much better. Because I have to put things into the way I would say it, not the way they have it written. Like, but keeping the, the general theme just personally. Well, what I think I did though is I added too many jokes to it because really you were you were setting up Mo right, and the punch, the punchline joke was, "This is too good to be true." I bet you're the FBI, right? You know, yeah. And, and but I was throwing too much too many jokes in there, like that. I think the line from the script was something to the effect of, I didn't know what to do after Rush Limbaugh died, but Hamid turned me on to Al Jazeera. And I just kept rambling with it. I was like, yeah, I didn't know what to do after Rush Limbaugh. That's Sean Hannity. He's kind of a little bitch. And then Al Jazeera, why are we all afraid of Al Jazeera? It's like something that, you know, you should take for hay fever or something. Anyway, I was just chilling. That's awesome. All right. Makes sense of the world for me because we're sitting here on a day where nasdaq i think was down two percent mm -hmm. Dow was down a point and a half i think oil prices that were up but oil stocks are down right i think we could get natural gas from the street corner if we yeah. wanted it, it's free you know it just comes dime, in free. it's a dime bag yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. exactly. <laughs> but, but actually a dime it's actually the, it's the only dime. thing that's actually seen deflation you see deflation <laughs> We have that. We have seven stocks accounting for 100% of the growth. Mm -hmm. We haven't had a recession. And I can't understand why that hasn't happened. I've, we've, we've seen inflation. 
I will say, though, inflation hasn't been as bad as I thought it would have been given the amount of money. I can't make sense of any of us, any of this. And you're really smart. So that's why <laughs> fake, I wanted you. Fake it to you, that, That's why I wanted you to come on. Sure. So when you look at the inflation, you know, stagflation side, you have to look at, like you said, there's the, the, the core companies that are essentially anything AI. Anything that's doing AI is just up an ungodly amount. And if you look at like Cisco 1998, it just looks shockingly similar. And just like everything else, you know, the things it don't, you know, history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. And so you're looking at the next iteration of what that tech boom would look like. The problem when you look at inflation, you know, to your point on, on why haven't we had a recession? It's like, well, what is a recession? And, and I think when you look at the no growth and the, there's no growth and there's like the soft landing. And I think the problem is going to be is that how long is the soft landing? So you're seeing this, this movement down, but it doesn't mean it's going to collapse. It just means that you're going to see this really long kind of stagnant growth. And the reason why you haven't seen that straight up recession is because of the consumer. The consumer has been layering in a significant amount of debt. And you have the government that has just been putting in money, which has helped to keep the, the, the GDP afloat. But when you start whittling down these key pieces, there's really not been much growth per se. Now, when you look at the inflation buckets and you say, well, it's like, well, it hasn't been as bad. What hasn't been as bad? You know, have you bought a new car recently? Have you, uh, you know, you look at food, then you look at healthcare. You know, some of these things in pockets, the inflation has been massive. But if you're not worried about one or the other, you're not going to see it the same amount. So when you look at core inflation, when you look at services, it continues to creep higher, but it's also being buried in that shrinkflation or, you know, you're getting, you're paying the same or a little bit more, but for much less. So the quality of what you're getting is coming that, down. I've noticed that, believe it or not, mm -hmm. the, the most dramatic effect of that is actually at my local Chinese restaurant down in Rosenberg, Texas. I mean, the thing I've ordered for 35 years, right. uh, jalapeno uh, shrimp with bl in black bean sauce right. is now about two thirds of the size, mm -hmm. and the rice is no longer a bowl; it's a cup. Right. Yeah. And that's where it. So they're trying to do that bait and switch where you're not getting as much, and the service quality is going down, but you're still paying the same amount. And they've almost trained you in a way to expect to get less but pay more. And that's where it's it, they're good at trying to hide it and trying to make it seem like you're still getting and the inflation isn't as bad. But when you start stripping away and you think about, well, 2019, I was getting a lot to your point on, you know, the rice has been cut and realistically, how much does rice cost? Yeah. So what are they trying to protect their margin with? And that's where, you know, the inflation has been quite sneaky in terms of the, the bite that it's created. And then it's also based on regions. You know, some regions are going to see inflation and on a percentage will sound bad, but realistically, you're starting from such a low point, inflation is going to be felt differently in different locations. So the Northeast is obviously the Northeast, you know, California, the West Coast, but there's areas where prices don't seem as bad, but that you started from such a low point that you're rapidly catching up and wages just haven't. And now you're getting this, this wage price spiral that's starting to amp up. And that's why I think the Fed is going to be concerned because if you think about the set the late 70s into the early 80s you had three waves of inflation 
And right now we're coming into wave two. And that's why I do think Powell, as much as I don't like him, I don't think he's a stupid individual. And I think he sees what's coming and wants to get ahead of it because he's going to say, look, the Taylor rule, which you can use to gauge what the Fed funds rate should be, you know, you could say that uh, pretty much throughout most of the last two years, we should have been at about 7%. So he's going to say, all right, guys, I'm going to get you to five and a quarter. I could get you to seven, but I'm not going to. But because I didn't go all the way to the to where I should have been, I'm going to stay here much longer and try to kill some of this pressure that's coming up. Because like when I was at COP28, everybody was saying, oh, you know, we have no growth because of uh, elevated rates. And it's like, what? If you went back to 1998 and you told them that the 10-year was 5%, they'd be like, yeah, and? Okay. You know, we invented, we created the internet with a two-year at 6%, but we've gotten trained to think, oh, we need 10, the 10-year 10 at, at sub 1% to have growth, to have innovation. Realistically, you've actually seen a stagnation in innovation because people have just done that financial manipulation, buybacks, leverage the balance sheet, buyback equity, instead of actually adjusting their hurdle rates. And now, so you have all of these zombie companies you have all these companies that are just churning through debt, but actually have no means or path to cash flow positive. And that's where you're seeing a lot of these zombie companies that are just going to die on the vine. So where does this wind up shaking out? Because you were sitting there talking about potentially Fed um, trying the, the, the slow, soft landing, if you will, for mm -hmm. a long time. You know, when I go back and look at history, fiat currencies end like that. <laughs> you know, they yes. Yes. It, it's it's not a slow land. I mean, you're you're the Weimar Republic having mm -hmm. a good day, and pretty soon you're walking around with wheelbarrows of money. I mean, have we have we hit Weimar Republic, or is it, or is the flip side the dollar as ugly as it is is still the healthiest member of the leper <laughs> colony, and we're just you know. We're going to slog through. And I, I think that's the biggest the biggest part, part of it is where we are the prettiest house on the ugliest block. And right. it's the kind of thing where when you look at how we've installed ourselves, you know, when you take in the equity markets, the debt markets, that's just a piece of it. Everyone's like, oh, well, those can be replaced. But look at SWIFT. So when you look at at what people are paying for in international uh, transactions, the dollar has actually gained traction because would you rather use the dollar or the euro or the yen? So realistically, the yen has lost a significant amount of, uh, of their transaction capacity. You're seeing them drop off and people are opting to use more dollar. Now, the other piece, which is everyone likes to point to the equity market and the fixed income market, there's also the insurance market. There's the derivatives market the hedging market, which when you think of it from a notional value side, excuse me, it's massive. And that is a huge component where how do you replace that? And to your point, it's, it's we are kind of stuck here and there's no way to really replace us because you'd have to rebuild the system, which is why Brent Woods was so good for us back in the 70s when you had this restructuring and now I think when you go to Brentwood's 2.0, 3.0, you're going to get a reweighting, but the dollar's still going to maintain its strength. And one of the things that I said back in 2020 is 
the dollar is going to survive this round. You know, I, I do think to your point, like you see it getting chipped away at, but everyone keeps collapsing faster. So then all of a sudden it's like, all right, well, who am I going to use? Like, who can I rely on and protect? And as long as we have the Navy that we have, it's going to be really hard to not use the dollar. India is a perfect example because everyone's pointing to BRICS and saying, oh, look at BRICS. You know, <coughs> the BRICS getting together is going to eliminate the dollar. Well, Brazil's turning around to China and saying, well, I don't want to use the yuan. And then India is like, well, if you're not going to use the rupee, I'm not going to use the yuan. I don't trust the ruble. So then who do you default to? Well, the dollar. You know, where can the I- great American it, Satanist capitalist. Exactly. Yeah. And it's really difficult because if you think about how Brazil has structured itself using forwards to manage and swaps, well, who are you going to go against? Well, the, it's a, what's the most liquid market? The US dollar. So, and then at the same time, and this is the overarching theme, in order to be the reserve currency of the world, you have to be willing to run an account deficit. How many countries are willing to have an account deficit? China never wants to have a deficit. They always want a surplus. So it's going to be really difficult to really dethrone the dollar in a meaningful way. <laughs> Our skill set at printing money is, <laughs> is, uh, is allowing us to... It, it, it's, and it's amazing. It's, it's amazing. And, what and is it's, your core competency as a country? <laughs> we print money. And, and it's... And, because we've created this situation where we've gotten everyone addicted to the dollar. You know, how many, uh, how much international debt is denominated in dollars? How many, how much insurance and all these things that cross, which is why we're just locked in this. You know, how many people even know there's a European option versus an American option? You know, how many people are buying calls and puts under the European standard versus the American standard? And it's just that we've just been able to establish ourselves. So we're sitting here five years redoing this podcast. Mm -hmm. The the review of the last five years is just kind of slogging along. Yeah, I think this is, I, and it's funny now because it, back in 2019, I was looking at this and saying, we're going to head into what I called the lost decade. And it was more along the lines of what was happening in China. And the problem is what was happening in 2019 in China was happening in 2011. It's just the law of diminishing returns. At some point, you're going to hit the wall. And back when, uh, when the European crisis was happening, you know, the, the comment was, you know, the foot is strong and the can is light, so you can keep kicking that can. But I was like, until you're kicking it straight into a brick wall that's right in front of you. And that's what happened with China. China was just kicking that can, and then eventually you were going to have that drop off. And the U.S., is something similar. You know, we both have debt problems. One has a real estate debt problem mixed with a more provincial debt, which it is a communist country, so it rolls up to the federal government. And we just skipped it and just went straight to the federal government printing. So you have these two debt issues, and the only way to really normalize this is to work it off. But you have to be willing to make those tough structural changes. And that's where, you know, do you go down the Japification? Japification route, or do you make the structural change, accept no growth, have a bit of deflation, kind of reset the system, and then you're back off to the races? If, if, and I want to stick on the economy for just a second before we hit the energy, but if, if five years from now we're doing this and we're talking economy 
and we surprised way to the upside. Mm -hmm. What happened? It was the consumer that was willing to carry more debt than anybody perceived possible. Okay. And it's really because what do we have but the consumer? I mean, that's what China's missing. China was trying to create the consumer, never quite got there because the Asian mindset has always been more of a saving mindset. And it's hard to make that pivot where, you know, I, I make the joke back when, when I was younger and, you know, my grandparents are off the boat Italian. And my grandmother says to me, go get the pizza dough. Because, you know, I, mean, I, I don't know if you've had this, but every grandparent, at least, back when I was little, every grandparent had coffee cans that the dough was in. So I, I would go get the dough. So she, I, but it's in a coffee can. Okay. I open one coffee can. What is there? Screws. Open another one. There's bolts. Open another. There's a thousand dollars in cash. And, and I look, I'm like, so I finally find the dough. I bring it up. I was like, grandma, why do you have all that money in cans? She's like, oh, can't trust the banks. Can't yeah. trust the banks. And it's that took time and it really happened with more of the boomer side where they started to spend more, be a bit freer. And then that was when, but anyone that came through the Great Depression, you didn't trust banks. You always had 10K, 10K in cash right. somewhere in a house. And Buried out in the yard. People had a suitcase. Absolutely. Yeah. They had a suitcase. They, they, were, they were in coffee cans, wrapped it in plastic and buried it in the garden. Yeah. And you know, my grandfather was... <laughs> The, the running joke was, you know, it's always underneath the tomato flower, uh, the, the, the tomato uh, garden, but, you know, they kept it in the basement. But when they passed away and we were cleaning out the basement, I mean, there was eight grand, eight grand in the basement, just in coffee cans. I was like, this is, but that was the mindset. And now to your point on what makes this different, it's just we're continuing to allow the consumer to carry that debt. And it just comes down to, rates and banks willing to write those those loans i think at some point you're going to have that that point of no return where consumers are like you know what i can't do this anymore and the reason why i say this is more like the 70s into the 80s is because you know in that period you came off the gold standard you had unfettered printing based on the vietnam war coming out of it you had a wage price spiral and you had commodity shortfalls you know what do you have here you know, and whether those commodity shortfalls were real or created, you have something similar. You know, you, you have crude prices that are sticky. You have gas that's come down, but you have gasoline and diesel that's sticky. You have unfettered printing. Obviously, there's a lot more zeros now than there was in the 70s, but it's very similar. And, and that's why I think you're seeing something very, uh, that's repeating itself. And Powell knows that if he doesn't stay in front of it, you're going to create a Volcker type situation. And even Volcker said, look, I wish I went up slower, stayed higher longer, but not at 22%. He was like, I wish I got to 19% and then stayed there instead of running straight up. But he had to regain the faith in the Fed. And I think he's trying to do that of like, look, the Fed put is gone. And I think that's going to be that balancing act to when does the consumer stop? I think when people stop relying on the Fed put. You're actually wrong. The we surprised to the upside if Travis Kelsey and Tay Tay actually oh. get married and start having children. Yes. You, so you missed yes. that. Well, but. so the what does she add to the? What is it like 0.4 percent to the GDP? Yeah. Of, I mean, so now the way that they would fix this is if they telecast their wedding at the movie theaters, so you could actually attend their wedding live. 
in the movie theaters. There we go. I think that would be, that is a home run idea. Can I audition to be the priest? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I'll do absolutely. it as Ron White. Yes. That well, would probably fit. Or, or you could you could try to do the Mira from Schitt's Creek when she is the, because yes. Yes. that is that's another really, yeah. really good we priest. Could, we could do that. So <laughs> if we surprise to the downside, like mm -hmm. it's just, way worse than any of us imagine over the next five years what kind of happened there i i think it's the debt bubble popped much faster yeah. and and it's really going to be how does the how do the banks manage this and and this is the the ignorance of the fed and and the uh the banking situation so during the stress tests because everyone wanted to do their stress test everybody just assumed lower rates nobody stress test a bank if rates went up, yeah. it's like, so eventually, essentially you were saying that you were so, I guess, full of yourself, you thought you could hold back the invisible hand and the invisible hand is going to come backhand pimp slap everyone that thought it was going to be held back. And one of the things I've said is you can delay it, but you're never going to hold it back. And I think depending on how quickly it comes across and is it at a federal level, excuse me, is that a, is it at a real estate level? Is that at a consumer level? Or is it kind of a mixture of all three? I think that's going to be how deep does it go? Because I, the consumer is in trouble. And I think that's where I get the most concern. In the middle of COVID, uh, I think it was Heart Energy had me on to talk about shale. And I did the bubble talk and kind of went through the bubbles of history, you know, the TULA bubble. Yep the railroad mm -hmm. bubble in England in the 1850s, which by the way, has my single favorite business quote of all time, a Rothschild, could, could you know, for the audience, back in the 1850s, literally at one point, someone did a calculation with all the railroad tracks they were laying in England, mm -hmm. that every person on the island had to be on a train for 22 hours a day for the railroads to just break even, right? not even make any money. Yeah. And uh, a Rothschild is reported as saying, there are three paths to, uh, to ruin, wine, women, and engineers. <laughs> I, the like that. The I like that. The first two are more fun. The last one's the most certain. Yeah. And uh, supposedly 90% of the railroad tracks in London or in uh, England today were built in the 1850s. Mm -hmm. They've obviously replaced tracks and all. Right. But anyway, the... The, the interesting thing is you read all the academic studies on, on bubbles and it's, they literally go up till they go down. Right. And, and, and none of the academics have been able to come up with the four or five characteristics of when the fall happens. Mm -hmm. It literally just happens. And yep. so that's my, that's always my, to your point on the, the debt bubble, if you will. Right. That's always my fears. One day it just shows up and. Mm -hmm with a man who has no income and lives <laughs> on a modest portfolio, that kind of sucks. Well, and, and to your point, when you look at, like I was having this conversation uh, several times. One was about Bitcoin, when Bitcoin was going from at 75,000 and everyone's like, you know, is it gonna collapse? I'm like, well, yeah. And they're like, well, so I shouldn't buy it? I was like, I, I never said it's, it could go to 151st, but it's gonna go back to 26,000 at some point. So, and it's the same thing when you look at NVIDIA, because everyone was like, oh, should I, should I short NVIDIA? I'm like, sure. I was like, but there's no reason NVIDIA <laughs> can't go up another 300 bucks. Like, why not? 
Like, yeah. Why did Cisco continue going up? Like, why couldn't NVIDIA go up another 400? Because why are you buying it here? Not to say it's not a great company, not to say it's not producing something of the future, but how many people are buying NVIDIA 1000 chips? You know, they, they fit in a shoebox. And like, if you think of a blade of a server, that blade consumes the same electrical throughput as an EV. So it's like, how who, are we rebuilding a grid? Like, are we adding power somewhere? Like, how are we going to support this? And to your point on, and back to the China piece, it's like everybody, when I was making the pitch on why I thought China was in trouble, they're like, oh, you could have said that in 2011. It's like, sure, you could have said it in 2011, but they had a thousand ghost cities. You know, and I said back in 2014, I was like, is it a thousand? Is it 10,000? Is it a million? At some point, you're going to hit that critical mass where, to your point, nope, it was the, the millionth and first. Why wasn't it the 999th? <laughs> it, was, it was that last one that just pushed it over the edge, and then you're, you hit the point of no return. And that's something similar where, you know, what, what is it? Economists have called eight of the last four bubbles, you know, right. and, and, yeah. that's, and that's the whole thing. Like, I've been saying the consumer should have dropped, you know, a year ago. And here we are, and the consumers still sitting there, just printing money with their with their credit cards, with and abandoned. I'm like, guys, like, credit card APR is like 26. percent Like, you understand that 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 compounds on itself, right? Like, what are you guys doing? But until someone stops, it's going to keep. You know, the the roll the merry-go-round is going to keep going. So, what does this pretend for us in energy? What do we need to be in this world? What do we need to be thinking about energy? So from an energy perspective, I think we're in a very good position, especially when you look at, at liquids. So, you know, and, and again, I'll probably get, get shit for this, but I don't think, I think black oil is demand is topped out. I don't think it goes down. I'm not calling, <coughs> I'm not calling peak oil. But I think when you look at black oil, we've really kind of hit this, this steady state that we have found. But there's a huge demand for liquids. They're from the natural gas liquid side, from the condensate side. When you look at the green dream and how it's built on plastic, you're going to have to see a significant amount coming, coming forward. So who produces the most of it? Who has a ton of it? The U.S. You know, I get concerned, and this is where this comes back to more of a political statement. We have the position where if we wanted to get serious and we wanted to vertically integrate, I mean, we could easily compete against anyone else in the world, but instead we're trying to, you know, that greenwash where, okay, we'll produce it, but we're not going to refine it here. We're going to send it halfway around the world and bring it back as the final product. It's like, but why? And that's where I think as we go, and if you go use the scope metrics, scope one to scope four, you know, some of the individuals that are, that are pushing that green agenda, they're like, oh, we need to show scope three, scope four. And as an energy guy, I'm like, yeah, let's, let's go all the way. Let's go soup. Let's go, you know, cradle to grave. Because I think a lot of the nuances that were hidden for a long time are going to get ripped off. And you're starting to see people get serious about it. And especially when you look at the cancellations of wind projects, solar projects, and that's what I think higher rates has to do. You have to normalize. You've had misallocation of capital for the last decade or more because of these low rates. I think if you rip the Band-Aid off, 
you take away these subsidies, you take away these low rates, and it's like, wait, natural gas is what kind of break even? And that wind is what kind of break even? Like, what is your uptime and, and utilization rate? What is yours? Oh, okay. And now all of a sudden, this makes a lot of sense. And if you start looking at the technology that decarbonizes energy, you do methane capture, you do <coughs> carbon capture, you do uh, you know methane tracking, all of a sudden you're like, well, this is a really good solution when you start looking at it on the full spectrum, which I think has to be brought forward much faster. Yeah. the um, I keep coming back to, and we talked about this yesterday on the BDE show, because I think one of the best things from their point of view that the environmentalists did is they convinced the world that we'd have all green energy. It would be <laughs> cheaper if it just weren't for big, big, bad oil. Right. And, you know, and, and I always say, if that were true, China, China is using a lot of renewables, mm -hmm. but they're also building a lot of coal plants. Yep. You know, that kind of tells you something about, about economics. And so. And, and baseload power. I think that it comes down to where is your base load coming from? And one of the things, so when I was in Mazdar City, you know, we were I was working with GE Capital at the time, and we were trying to figure out what was the right mix of solar, you know, you had short cycle gas turbines, wind, solar, geothermal. And what was the right basket? Because it was always about a basket approach. You know, solar in the sands of Nevada are fantastic. You know, solar in the clay of Houston or the winters of Minnesota, not as much. So you have to be serious about where you're going to put this. So when we're there, you know, there is, <laughs> we're doing these testings and I go up to the, to the solar panel and I notice that there's a film on it. And I'm like, well, why is there a, what is this? And I'm like, oh, you know, because the Middle East was underwater for so long, there's actually a very high clay content. And as the wind blows, it, it creates static electricity and the clay adheres to it. I'm like, well, and now mind you, there's solar panels as far as the eye can see. I'm like, well, how often do you have to clean these? And she's like, well, we try to clean them three times a week. So I'm like, well, what's the efficiency degradation? And she's like, well, it can be anywhere between five and 10%. So I was like, so what's your maximum? And she's like, well, the Shockley Quasar, the SQ law puts you at 34% maximum. She's like, we're, we're probably getting about 28%. And then you're knocking off 5% of 28%. Wow. I'm just, so I'm sitting, I'm like, wait, wait, what now? So then, you know, fast forward, we're, we're, we're trying to buy these hydroelectric assets in the Midwest and we have to get a third party report. So, you know, the, the sands of Nevada average between 28% and 30% of efficiency and it's sand. So no clay, it just bounces off 30% gradients. So we, we have to get a third party report and they're like, oh, well, you know, we're doing this for Minnesota. And they're like, well, you know, with uh, factoring in a 34% efficiency rating of solar, I'm like, wait a minute. I was like, so you're telling me I'm going to go a thousand miles further north of the equator than the sands of Nevada with clay, nine months of, of cloud cover and, and uh, shortened seasons and reduced solar exposure. And I'm going to outperform Nevada? And so we're pushing back and they finally just say, well, the banks want us to say this. I was like, well, what do the banks say? It was like, well, the banks are being told by the government to say this. I'm like, so you're not a third party report. You're just spewing mathematical lies that will never happen, but we're building our grid under these assumptions. And that's why you're seeing these power prices go up. 
you're seeing this misallocation of capital because solar is not doing the efficiency gradients that they were promising, even though anybody that has worked in electricity or spark spreads were like, it was never going to do that. That's interesting. <laughs> All the while you were saying that is, you know, anytime you go stop at a red light in Houston, there's always a guy squeegeeing your car waiting to chill. And I was like, we found a solution to the homelessness. <laughs> exactly. Just send them These over guys there. Are great. Yes. yes. You can you can knock this out. The uh do you do you think we've gotten real in the world where we can actually have an intelligent discussion about this? For sure, three years ago, I would have said no. I mean, you know, everybody's hysterical. Oh, oil and gas, we're going to kill everybody. Greta, Greta, Greta. The invasion of Ukraine, I think, did a little bit in terms of us having a serious, thoughtful discussion about it. Winter Storm Uri in Texas, Senate Bill 4. Dare I say, even I'm willing, I, I actually kind of like the original George Bush design for ERCOT of, I'll pay you for your electricity. Shows up, I'm going to pay you. It was a free market approach. Now, it didn't count on all the subsidies yep. to solar and wind. Mm -hmm. And I have come back to, we probably have to pay for some capacity yeah. in some way, shape, or form to change the market. But are we in the world yet where we can have a thoughtful discussion about it or we, would we need more crisis? So it's a good question. And I think when you look at the, I'll just take Germany for an example. So you have, you had the invasion of Ukraine and you still closed all of your nukes. It's like, you understand that most of your natural gas was coming by pipe. And then the by rest- By the way, who did, who did Nord Stream? Who is, so if- who, who do you think? I'm going to be honest with you. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say that the Russian divers and the American divers bumped into each other and said, <laughs> you, you take one, I'll take two. And the one that they didn't blow up fully was the Russians. And the ones that was blown up fully, that was the Americans doing it right the nice. first time. Nice. But I I you know, there's there's a lot of reasons why different entities would do it. And I would say that there was probably some collusion as to who. But just like you look at the Chinese vessel that just so happened to leave its anchor dragging for 2,000 nautical miles. It's like, I've been on boats. If you're dragging an anchor- You kind of know. You you're, leaning, you're pulling to one direction and you're ripping up lines, you're, you're breaking pipelines. It's like, yeah, it's like that's, that's a little, that's a little uh, suspect, but- So my original, my original thought were the Iranians, because you could kind of daisy chain some Iranian natural gas through some pipelines to get to Europe. And they mm -hmm. don't have the infrastructure like we do where we can shoot gas wherever. Mm -hmm. Kind of got a daisy chain around. But those pipelines uh, going from Iran to Europe, my understanding is you, you had enough capacity there that, and you know, because the core competency of the Iranians is blowing shit up. Mm -hmm. I mean, they do that well. Mm -hmm. Those guys are really good at that. So I kind of thought that uh, Brad Olson's take was it was Poland. Poland saw what <laughs> happened to Ukraine and they said, we're not going to do this yeah. anymore. Boom. But uh, so the Israelis do it, do probably even better than the Iranians. When yeah, it comes that's to true. The, but it's funny because if you look at Qatar, Qatari gas and Iranian gas, I mean, they have a deal where Qatar pays. So 
if they wanted to increase their LNG pricing and their LNG capacity, they there was another reason because they get paid from the Qataris to uh, to uh, pull in from the shared fields. Ah, there so we go. There's a lot of different ways, but when you look at, could we have really done that to the Germans? Yeah, we could have. Yeah. Okay. I I, I think there was enough anger. Now again, Trump, no Trump. But if you think about when he was talking about in at the UN. And he's talking about how Germany has to get serious about their regasification facilities, you know, trying to diversify. And they're laughing at him. They're making fun of him. Right. And it's like Orange Man. Yeah. It's yeah. like, you know, and again, he spoke like an asshole. He speaks like an asshole. He's yeah. probably gotten crazier now than he was. But what he's what he was saying, especially internationally, wasn't wrong. It wasn't said in a way like I I, I used to say it's like, watch the watch Bill speak. And just replicate what Bill Clinton, how, how Bill Clinton says it is how you should say it. Yes, exactly. It's like, you're not wrong about NATO. You're not wrong about China. You're not wrong about infrastructure. It's like, but you're saying I'm like such an asshole. I was like, I'm, stop. I used to be a big, huge free trader. Go through a pandemic, mm -hmm. don't have any toilet paper. I know we weren't making toilet paper all over the world. But my right. point is, without toilet paper, okay, maybe some protectionism's not bad. I'm willing to give Trump, and again, I don't like Trump, but mm -hmm. I'm willing to give him credit for that because he's always said that. He yep. said that his whole his whole life. Well, when you look at, and this is where you go back to Obama, and I call it the Rose Garden lie, and it was when Obama straight up said to Xi, "What are you doing on these islands?" And they're like, "Oh, we're just we're just doing this for oceanography. It's it's all <laughs> scientific. You know, nothing negative's going to happen." And within six months, they have sonar stations and anti-missile uh, launchers. So that st set the stage. And a lot of the laws that he, that Trump pushed through were actually formed under the Obama. A lot of the numbers that Trump quoted were Obama era numbers. And there's been a lot of continuity between the different presidents on how do you look at China and how do you counter? Because there has to be some protectionism. Now, the problem is it can't go too far because if you look at World War I into World War II, you know, you have to project out. And I'm very much a Truman Doctrine guy, which is, you know, have these smaller skirmishes and avoid the bigger war and, you know, carry the big stick, walk softly. And I think we have to get back to, you know, you're going to be, people are going to be annoyed by you, but at in the grand scheme of things, it'll save lives in the, in the long run, it'll keep trade open, and you'll help to avoid some of these things. But when you look at the polarization and anger, like everyone is just so angry. And it's really because there's lack of social mobility. You know, people are struggling to climb that ladder because you have people that are like, I'm gonna graduate college, get a job, I'm gonna, you know, work hard. And then you sit there and 10 years later, you're like, I've, what, what have I achieved? And it's like, you feel like you're getting hit by it from all over and that, that migration so, isn't happening. So, so I, um, BRV, uh, mm -hmm. actually we did a podcast, gosh, probably about three years where QDC, very liberal BRV, very mm -hmm. conservative through direct messages, emailed back and forth with me and Stacy McDonald. Mm -hmm. And we would ask questions and then we read the script. And reading the script was hysterical because <laughs> 90s random read yes. it. 
and it was the biggest cluster <laughs> mess. The outtakes from that uh, podcast are great. One of the things BRB said that I give him credit for, if you look at the Trump rhetoric and take it all the way to QAnon, mm -hmm. and if you look at the very progressive rhetoric and take it on to like BLM, mm -hmm. et cetera, if you take off certain names, you can't tell no, the difference. It's can't. both being disassociated yes. from the American dream. Yes. It really is. Yes. And I think, that, and it's a great point because everyone has to realize they're angry at the same thing. They're being used by each side because they're trying to direct that anger. I mean, you look at Hitler. I mean, what did Hitler do? He directed that anger, but people, they couldn't eat. They, yeah. they were like you talked about wheelbarrows full of Deutschmarks. Right. You know, you were buying bread based on the weight of the cash in the wheelbarrow, not by counting it. If I and I and and I got in a lot of trouble when I was at Bloomberg for this, because I said, you know, everyone's like, oh, we're too uh we're too smart in advance for a war. I'm like, you, that is such an elitist statement. I was like, if you have someone on one side of an invisible border and somebody on the other side, and you're your child is crying because their tummy hurts because they can't eat. And then you have a politician come in and be like, hey, if you kill that guy over there, your family will eat forever. That person will, will kill that individual. And again, it, there's, it has nothing against them. And the running statement on war is, I don't fight because I hate the man in front of me, but because I love the people behind me. And I think that is missed sometimes because if a bowl of rice is going to save your family and I can take it from that guy, I'm going to go take it. And that's what we're seeing. And that's where, to your point on stripping away the rhetoric, and it's like, guys, like everyone's angry for the same reasons. We have to stop focusing on the 10% on each side, come to the middle and have a serious conversation. So back to your point on, on the green dream, you look at Germany. Germany like, the, I think they uh, the Green uh, Party won one county out of all of the counties in all of Germany. You know, you look at this swing and the pendulum is coming the other way because people are like, well, or, uh, Orsted, you know, uh, uh, going down to multi-year lows. You had um, uh, Siemens that took a massive write down because of of their contract of their um, uh, uh, contract liability on the uh, warranties because you have things in these in these wind turbines that are breaking after 10 months and you have a warranty for three and a half years four years so they had to go to the government and get a 15 billion dollar loan just to stay afloat it's like clearly there's something broken now unfortunately in the u.s and and elsewhere you need someone of consequence to die and that's unfortunate because if the elderly die and the homeless die People don't care as much. It's like, oh, that's sad. But if a children's hospital loses power, if children are freezing to death, like all of a sudden it becomes real. It's like, whoa, that is a person of consequence. And unfortunately, that's where we have to get to. And you have to kind of shake people out of this, this, this ideology and, and finally say, all right, we have to get serious about this. And I think we're getting there, but it's going to take something more. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about your fund that, that you invest in and specifically, because I find this fascinating. <laughs> I want to talk dams. Sure. 
This, sure. this to me is you. Every time you and I talk, we talk <laughs> about this for about an hour, and I'm just like, this can't be real. Yep. But anyway, so we uh, they we have an energy infrastructure fund, and the idea is like, look, we need to invest in energy infrastructure. There's a huge shortage. One of the things coming out of uh, 2020, I was saying, I was like, look, we're going to have a decade of industrial accidents. I was like, you had a, uh, the great retirement. You have infrastructure that was underinvested in for 35 years. You have some things that are 10 years past their expiration date, and you're asking to run hard to make up for the pandemic. I was like, this is a disaster waiting to happen. So one of the things that we honed in on was base load power. It's like, all right, well, solar and wind don't work. <coughs> you know, natural gas is a good solution, but good luck getting additional molecules into the Northeast and to some other locations. So we we initially thought about coming back to the NGLs, can we get propane uh, up and can I buy storage and then optimize propane movements? Well, you'll be surprised to know that that is not politically uh, attainable in, in a lot of areas. Seems so, like you need to have a discussion <laughs> with a guy named Rocco to make that happen. <laughs> exactly. Now that, exactly. That may I mean, I have I have my chain, my guinea tea on, yeah. but I just, you know, you have to have a certain movement that I just don't have. So we started looking at this and, and you know, we saw these hydroelectric assets and I was introduced to a gentleman, Justin, who has been, who was starting to buy up these hydroelectric assets and saying, look, these are owned by mom and pops small businesses that are either looking to sell, you know, looking for a, an exit from retirement, you know, or it's just non-core to the business anymore. So we started looking at these things. I mean, just alone in the in in New York, you have 600 hydroelectric assets in New York alone. And the Northeast, I mean, specifically and This is dam in a river? Dam I mean, in a river. Holy cow. Damming yeah. a river. There there are more if you're driving in New York and going over a river, the, you're likely driving over a hydroelectric dam in New York. And that's where it's flood control. It's it's all of these control pieces. <coughs> and they just, they, they started as, you know, one of the dams that we owned was initially built in 1867. Obviously it was wood then, but it's been covered over since. And when we discovered electricity, they added a powerhouse and you've had this build out, but it stagnated after the 70s and 80s when there was a big push to revitalize these. Last time we had inflation. So now there's some assets that are great for optimization. So there's one dam that we just purchased that was used as the testing site to build the, um, the Hoover Dam. So the Hoover Dam's structure is actually modeled off of this dam in New Hampshire. And you just look at some of these amazing ingenuity, but Yes, it's tried and true. Yes, it's something that has been done before, but we're just buying them up and optimizing them. So we've increased electrical throughput by up to 15% by just adding tra uh, trash racks, automated trash racks. Uh, some what's, of the dams a what's a trash rack? I don't even know what a trash rack so is. They're actually really cool. Sounds cool. It, it is cool. So again, it's we're cleaning the river. So we're actually adding a value to this, but it, it when the foliage comes down in fall, there's a lot of leaves in the river. Okay. So what we have is we installed automated trash racks so the operator can see, oh, electrical throughput is dropping off and hit a button and the trash rack will automatically go and actually just scrape the leaves off and drop it on the platform. And we have an operator that goes, cleans off the platform because you don't want them to blow back in. And that's how we manage 
all of the uh, the flow through. And those are little things like we had. We've bought three dams that were not actually connected to the internet. Really? Not no internet. You they used they would go with a little USB. Oh, I I don't even think it was Windows. If it was Windows 10, it was it was updated. I mean, I felt like I was like DOS. And you yeah. plug in and you pull down the data because every month you have to send the uh, data to FERC. Right. So we just connected them to the internet. You know, put on some cameras, add some sensors, and five grand, and all of a sudden you you can optimize flow from from your cell phone. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, and and it's a, it's a it's a clean solution. Utilizing a tried and true method of generating electricity, and it's literally a spinning wheel. Like people think, they're like, "Oh, well, they're old. They're gonna do. They're gonna drop into the into the into the river." It's like, no. If you maintain these, because we actually built things of quality back in the day, I was like, they're gonna last for the, another hundred years. It's just you have to maintain them, and that's I think the biggest thing where you have to have that new kind of resurgence. And FERC has gotten smart to it. Now you can get a uh, a FERC exemption, which just means that they come and check on you, but you don't have to go through a relicensing. Because some of the dams we're buying, you know, the families owned them for t- for twenty years. They pulled all the cash out, and someone like yourself who doesn't know how to do a FERC relicensing, you're going to pay a consultant, which is going to cost you four hundred k for a dam that makes eight hundred k a year. And you're like, well, uh, this is stupid. Where for me, we in-housed all FERC, so what cost you 400 cost me 80. So it makes sense for me to, I can buy this from you, I can gain, gain value, and I can bring this into the 20s, 21st, 22nd century, use, utilizing something we've been doing since the Egyptians figured out you could use water. Yeah, that's so cool, that's so cool. We could go on for like oh. another five hours on yes. this because I'm always so fascinated. <laughs> but what else does the fund look at? So we, it's <laughs> being energy infrastructure, we focus on three key buckets because energy infrastructure is obviously broad. So it was baseload power, food and ag, and then industrial processes that are going more sustainable. Because one of the things is if you're if I can move sustainable 30%, I did something that's really good. Why do I have to go from zero to 100 and so we're looking at different opportunities. So the food side is one because I don't think people appreciated how energy intensive uh, fertilizer is. And and I tell the story where in 2019 we're we're making this pitch, and people are like I don't I don't understand food like fertilizer. Why fertilizer? And then in 2021, all of a sudden people uh, people looked at me and go, Martin, do you know how energy intensive fertilizer is? I'm like, guys. Do you are you trying to make me angry? Like, is, is that is are, are you playing with me? And so we wanted to find a way to take byproducts and create a fertilizer that is better than synthetics. You know, something that because you're never you need synthetics. You, you're you're never going to get rid of them, but you can optimize them. You can reduce them because they have what's called a um, osmotic impact. One of the things when you look at osmotic pressure, it's just essentially the salt index. And a soil can only handle a certain osmotic pressure until you start impacting the root system. So you can't go above a certain level with synthetics without causing damage. And unfortunately, because we've built up these synthetic um, residuals in the soil, over 60 years of doing it, you have to repair it somehow. So you have to find an alternative that not only can increase yield, 
but also repair the damage to the soil. And it's not because farmers were were purposely being terrible. It's just we were doing the best practices that we knew given the information that we had. And as we've gotten smarter, as science has improved, as computing power has improved, we're able to gain more information. And now we know how to do things better. And that's where, so the other problem is like when we were talking about the green dream, you know, in 2008, you crossed over a threshold and we, the easiest thing to take out of the atmosphere was sulfur. And if you have too much sulfur in the atmosphere, you get acid rain. And if you don't have enough, well, you have uh, uh, sulfur deficient soils. So think of anything that has a yellow flower, a yellow fruit, they absorb more sulfur. The sulfur is what makes it yellow. And it was funny because I'm, I'm at dinner and my, my daughter looks at me and goes, why is corn yellow? And I look and I say, oh, it's, well, it, it absorbs a lot of sulfur. The sulfur actually helps it. Uh, and my wife looks at me and goes, oh, that makes a ton of sense. She's like, because she's my editor. She's my, uh, she, she does all of the uh, editing and formatting. So she's like, I've read all these things. I never made that connection. So when you look at, so one of the companies that we invested in, they, they take uh, sulfur from the processing of oil and gas. For anybody watching this that has been in oil and gas knows sulfur is like, how do I get rid of this? So it's, we're taking a byproduct that, and turning it into a renewable, sustainable, organic fertilizer that the 33% of the world's so- soils is now deficient in. And there has to be this movement now of a micro, uh, from a micronutrient to a macronutrient to increase yield, repair soils. So there's a lot of fun things happening because I've been tracking a, a food shortage since 2007. 2007 was the first real failure of fish harvests in Asia. And that was what really kind of set off a chain event, which culminated in what we know as, as the Arab, uh, uh, the Arab uh, Spring, but abroad, it was the wheat wars or you know the, uh, uh, a wheat issue in terms of just availability of food. And if you look, every time you re-rate, you know, yes, it comes down, like to your point earlier about inflation, it's like, well, inflation doesn't seem that bad. It's like, but if you zoom out and you look at where food prices were in 2007 and where they are today, it's like, you've just gotten used to the fact that, oh, well, this milk is now going to be 450, not 98 cents. And that's where you've gotten this normalization of it. And we have to find a way to bring this down because it, again, Maslow's hierarchy, food, water, safety. That's what we need to create this base model and people are struggling to just put food on the table. Yeah, yeah. Well, how do folks reach you if they wanna if they wanna talk more about this stuff? Oh, sure. It's uh, my my email uh, m at c six capital dot com uh, holdings dot com. Uh, my Twitter at mark f and y, and then uh, I have have Squarespace on my website c six capital holdings dot com. Keeps it keep it simple. There you go. I got it. Well, Mark, you were cool to come on. This was uh, fun. I uh, I told myself before we started I was going to keep it to about an hour because it could have gone twelve. <laughs> we could, we could go down any rabbit hole you want. It's Absolutely. A, I was I, on my drive over here. I was preparing myself. I was like, Are we going to talk about my sister? Are we going to talk about personal? Are we going to talk economics, energy? I was like, This is go down any any rabbit hole. Yeah, I was about to say I didn't even know when we started where it was gonna where it was gonna <laughs> wind up uh, going, but uh, promise me you'll come back. Oh, of course. Good to see you, dude. Uh, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. <laughs>